All right. Uh, just let you know, um, coming in a couple of weeks, we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Joshua. If you've never read the book of Joshua, I encourage you, this is an opportunity to do it, to read through um, the book before we start, just so you're familiar with the story. I'll put some information out this week about the book and a little video you can watch to give you a little frame of how the whole thing goes together. But we're going to preach through the whole whole book, 24 chapters, I believe. Uh, we do that a lot in this church. We like preaching through the whole book of the Bible um, at a time. It means that we cannot miss anything out. We can't just sit on our favorite bits of the Bible. We have to teach it all, everything that God says to us. And there's no way to avoid some of the more thorny bits or the more uncomfortable bits or the bits we just frankly not interested in. Um, so we're going to be doing that starting next week. I'm excited, looking forward to it. We'll run it all the way up till Christmas and then finish it probably as we run down to Easter as we'll go through it all. But we're going to be hitting the book of Joshua. Get ready for that. Watch out for information about that. Now, Today we're going to be finishing up the book of Ruth, which has been our summer series. We're on the last part today. So if you've got a Bible, can you turn to Ruth chapter 4, right at the end there. We're just going to finish the last bits of it. Um, but before we do that, in let me just uh, draw your attention to this. Now, horrible old piece of wood here with nails in. I hope we've got my tetanus up to date. Now, in our garden uh, a while back, we had um, a tree came down, or a branch of a tree fell off. It wasn't actually our tree, it was our neighbor's tree. Um, but it fell off and it broke one of our fence panels. Um, and so I had to kind of, you know, we had to move the branch, then we had to replace the fence panel and stuff. And then what you've got left over is the broken bits of fence panel, which looks something like this. This isn't actually it, because I burnt the fence panel yesterday. But... Um, this is, this is an old piece of wood with nails in, which actually basically becomes good for nothing, really. After it's broken up and snapped and beaten, it's almost like, well, what, what do you do with it? It's no good. It needs to be kind of thrown out. It can be burnt, taken down the tip, recycled, that kind of thing. Um, it's happening. You can't leave it out for the bin man. Not that the bin men come around our way anymore. Ooh, little, look at that. It's an in-political joke there for the residents of this city. Um, But anyway, um, you can't really do much with it. However, if you give something that's tatty and old and broken like this and you put it in the hands of an artist, you can totally transform it because you get something like that and you transform it into something like this. And Philippa here, sitting at the front, is an artist and she takes horrible, broken pieces of wood and transforms them into something beautiful. And this was something that was made uh, for my wife for her 40th. And so I whipped it off the wall this morning on the way out of the house. Um, and you can see it's kind of origin from the back. But this is something Phil does. She takes things that are broken and old and discarded and she transforms them. And that's what an artist can do. An artist can take something that's horrible and good for nothing and worthless and turn it into something beautiful and magnificent that has pride of place in our home and gets hung on the wall and it's something we look at and we admire and it it speaks of something bigger uh, than what it started with and what we're going to be looking at today is the final part of our story in Ruth and we're going to be looking at how God has transformed something where it began at the beginning it was a mess. It was horrible. It was broken, if you remember back at the beginning of the story. But actually, as we finish out the story and we close out four chapters of what God's been doing between Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz, you can see how it's been transformed and God has restored what was broken to something magnificent and beautiful. If you have missed us, you're a guest here, you can catch up on the previous sermons. They're all online on our website. And let me give you just a quick recap of the book of Ruth 
so you know kind of where we've got to so far. What we've got is a story there. It's basically a kind of a love story between two characters, character of Ruth and a man named Boaz. And then we've got the other character is Naomi, who's the mother-in-law of Ruth. And it's a story basically of how God brings them together. And on the surface, it's just a human love story, and it's quite a beautiful love story, and it would probably make a really good rom-com in that sense. But actually behind it, there's something bigger. There is a bigger love story going on. There is a love story of God for his people. And through this human interaction between Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, we get the divine love story of God's heart for his people and his desire to have a people for himself. And what we follow through there is actually is God's line. And what was promised way back in the beginning of the Old Testament was that God would send a savior. He would send someone through the line. The promise was made to Judah way back and through his descendants would come one who would be the promised Messiah. But if we got to the beginning of the book of Ruth, there was a danger of that line being broken, that actually where would the Messiah come? And God uses his sovereign hand through providence to bring about these two people coming together and the continuation of his line that would ultimately one day be the Messiah who is Christ, Jesus Christ. And so that's what we've got. So we had the the story began with Naomi, who was married to a guy, um, and they moved to a foreign country with their two sons. The husband died, the two sons got married, then they died, so they suddenly left. Oh my goodness, mother-in-law with two daughters-in-law, not good dynamics, a lot of death, a lot of tragedy. Naomi, the mother-in-law, says, I'm going back home. You guys go back to, to your homes, there's nothing you can have with me because as a widow, she's got no form of income, no land, no inheritance, nothing. She is just destined for poverty and destitution. One of the daughters-in-law says, fine, I'm going back. The other daughter-in-law, Ruth, shows incredible character. She says, no, I will stay with you. Where you go, I'll go. Where you live, I'll live. Your God will be my God. And where you die, I will die. She shows incredible commitment. And what we see there in our modern parts is for her conversion. She becomes a follower of the God of Israel. She becomes a Christian. And she says, I am going to follow you and follow that God. When they return to Bethlehem, their home originally, and they find that the harvest has begun, but they're both poor widows. What can they do? So they go out in the fields to scavenge grain, to have something to eat. So they've got nothing to eat. They come across this man, Boaz. He owns the field. Boaz actually um, then shows huge great kindness to, to Ruth. And um, it's expressed in this word hesed, this Hebrew word, where he shows the loving kindness of God to her. And he's over-the-top blessing. He gives her food and provision because he's heard about her. He's heard about her character. He's heard about her devotion and her loyalty to her mother-in-law, which is completely out of kind of character, out of context. Who would do that? And so she blesses her. Then mother-in-law hatches a plan, thinking this guy is a redeemer. What does that mean? Well, the redeemer is the one who could buy back the inheritance from Naomi from her dead husband, could continue the family line, could marry Ruth and continue it, because that was the custom in the day. So they hatch this plan to go and kind of propose to Boaz, and he responds with integrity and says, yes, I'll do this. However, there is someone closer than I. There is someone else who can redeem you. So he goes through that with great righteousness and integrity. The other guy says no I don't want to redeem Ruth I don't want to have the land and so Boaz steps in and we saw just last time with Mel that they got together and they got married and it was kind of the uh, ending of the story and what we're going to be looking at today is basically the epilogue of the story the kind of when you watch a film I don't know if you notice there's like when they're finishing up there's usually a musical montage at the end in soft focus where they basically tie up all the plot lines and kind of finish out the story. And I remember when I watched Lord of the Rings. Remember the Lord of the Rings trilogy? 
which depending on which version you watch could go on for like a day or several days depending if you watch the extended version but when you finally got to the end of uh, Return of the King, the last one, and you finally got to the end of Return of the King, and you'd aged a year while watching it, and they said, all right, let's finally kind of, they'd won the battle, they'd defeated Sauron, the ring had been destroyed, but then they tie up all the plots, and what happens? Well, Aragorn marries Arwen, he becomes king of Gondor, and that's like, oh, that's wonderful. The, the hobbits return to the Shire, Sam marries Rosie, and they have kids. Frodo's writing his book, it's all good. And then eventually, what happens, Frodo and Gandalf and the elves go uh, across the sea to the Undying Lands. And it kind of just, it, it finishes up the story. And you're like, okay, finally, all the threads have been done, all the plot lines are done, that's the end. And what we're going to look at today is the final part of this story, which is basically the epilogue. I'm going to try and put it up there and read it. Go on, put it up. All right, wish me luck. You might want to follow along in your Bible, but I'm going to read that. This is our passage for a day. Okay, so basically Ruth and, Naomi, uh, sorry, Ruth and Boaz have been married. So it says, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child, laid him on a lap and became his nurse. And the woman of the neighborhood gave him the name saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They name him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Rad fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. All right, big idea for this morning. God will always bring about his purposes even in the most dire of circumstances. God will always bring about his purposes even in the most dire of circumstances. All right, let's look at this story. A couple of things. First one, we're going to look at the journeys, and then we're going to look at the big picture. The, the whole sort of tra- the trajectory of the book of Ruth has been journeys of restoration. Journey of restoration. Um, the, the story is concluded with the birth of a son to Ruth and um, Boaz, which will one day become David. That's the great King David, David of Goliath, this kind of figure that sort of towers over the Old Testament. We begin there with one verse, which is, con- is condensed. It's been quite a long a sort of very sort of static history. We've gone through it bit by bit. Suddenly we've gone nine months in one verse. They get married, have a son. Something's gone on in between. But only to, the author doesn't want to dwell on that. So actually we've got a child has come on. So they're married. They've finally got a son. And if we look at the story, what's happened is you've gone from tragedy and death in the opening chapter. For the opening verses, you think the first four or five verses, it's been there's three deaths one after the other, to suddenly you've got joy and birth at the end of the story. You've got the pain and loss of life at the beginning of the story, and at the end you've got the celebration and joy of new life. You've got family loss at one end, and this now you've got family addition with children being added to it. You had relationships ending in the first part of the book, and now relationships have been um, started, new relationships have come along. 
And what we've seen is we see the divine hand of God working with human um, obedience with it. And the focus of the story has been two women. It's been Ruth and Naomi. And if we follow each of their journeys through the story, we can see the hand of God restoring and bringing about his purposes in their life. If we take Ruth, who the book is named after, the first of all, when we first meet her, she's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She's not part of the covenant people of God. She's not part of kind of uh, what God is doing in the world, not part of the focus of the story. And in she comes. Just, uh, I don't know if you've ever been to a place where you've been the foreigner, where you've been the outsider, you've been the one who kind of doesn't quite fit in. I had a little experience with this this summer where we, me and my family went on a holiday and we ended up in Northern Ireland where we were seeing a friend, uh, seeing, sorry, seeing my family. And we were going there and we met some friends up there as well. And it suddenly realized when I went there, I might have looked like them, But boy, did I not talk like them. And I I only, as we kind of got there and we went out, so I suddenly realized, if I just stand here like this, I can blend in. As soon as I speak, you're going to know. And apparently saying top of the morning to you doesn't work. That doesn't make you fit in. I've realized that. I said that. If I do that, well, I know. Just don't try that. And so I, I, I had a little glimpse of what that can feel like. Being the outsider. If we go on foreign holidays, you go places, you kind of feel like the outsider. Ruth was like that. She was the outsider. And when she returned with Naomi to Bethlehem, she was described. Remember in the story, she was described as what? Ruth the Moabite. You're the foreigner, and we're going to name you it, so everyone knows. If anyone's unsure, it's now your name, Ruth the Moabite. And what we know about the country of Moab, it was completely opposed to the God of Israel. They did some horrific practices, child sacrifice, and also even their religion. It, was just, it wasn't good on what was going on there. And so she was the immigrant, she was a foreigner, she came in, and then if you follow the story through, chapter 2, chapter 3, she described as a servant, she wasn't just a foreigner, she'd now moved. She's now the servant. She describes herself when she meets Boaz, I am your servant. She was poor, lowly, widow. She didn't have any resources, any means. She had nothing of importance in her life. She was just a servant. That's why I, I am your servant. He was the landover. He was the wealthy guy. And then what happens by the end of the story? She's gone from foreigner, immigrant, servant to wife. She's now his wife and mother. As well, what a transformation in her in her fortunes! What a transformation in her life! What God has restored to her, which was lost at the beginning, and now at the end. What about in terms of her faith? She was follower of a pagan religion in Moab, and all the horrible things they did. We saw at the beginning of um, also the end of chapter one, she got converted. She chose to follow the uh, God of Israel. And by the end of it, she's now pulled into Israel, God's covenant people, God's covenant purposes. She's now on track with God, a total transformation in her life. At the beginning, she was a childless widow. She was married for 10 years and didn't have children. In that culture, that was huge. They didn't have what we have in modern birth control or modern footballs about having kids and only having 2.4 kids and all that. No. It was a sign of God's blessing. It was, a, uh, it was, in, it was a, your security in the future that you had kids. She had none after 10 years of marriage. And then she lost her husband. By the end of the story, she had a husband and she was a mother as well. God had provided for her. And if you notice in verse 13, it's the first time it says God has acted. There's a bit at the beginning of the chapter when God acts. And everything else has been unseen, behind the scenes. No miracles, no you know, incredible stuff in this story. But then we get to the end, it says, what does it say? The active hand of God says, she bore a son. 
God's hand has come in and blessed her, provide her with a son who would now be the heir, continue the family line. So her journey has been incredible throughout the book, what God has restored to her, what was lost at the beginning. And what about Naomi's journey, the other lady in the story? The story begins with her facing tragedy and death. And even at the end of chapter 1, it said she was complaining. She pointed the finger at God, you've done this. What did she do to her name? The name Naomi means pleasant. It's a lovely name. It's a beautiful name. And when she returned to Bethlehem after facing the loss of her husband, the loss of her son, she said, you don't you dare call me Mary. Sorry, don't you dare call me Naomi. Call me Mara. What does Mara mean? Bitter. (laughs) That's how bad she was doing. She said, I'm just going to change my name to Mara. So every time you say it, I'm reminded of the bitterness of my life and the pain that has come into my life. She was alone. She felt God had rejected her. She was, just, she was down on every possible thing. But then as we go through the story, we find that God provides a redeemer, one who would buy back the land, buy back the inheritance, continue the family line. The Lord has provided. And if we read the text that we've just done, it says um, the women who are kind of act as the chorus line. Um, so imagine, you know, in the musical, you have the chorus line who kind of sing the, always what the narrator does to the characters who are there. They kind of remind us what's going on. The, the women there, they're talking about that this, this new child that's been born, this continuation of God's blessing. It says he would be known beyond Israel and beyond his lifetime. Do you think that's happened? We're reading it in the Bible now in England, 2,000 years later. It's happened. God has blessed her and continued. We know this child's name. We know Naomi's name. We know everything it's done. It describes her. It said, would he be a restorer of life, bring back life and hope? This is a real contrast in what Naomi spoke about at the beginning, where she was just empty and destitute and lost. Everything's been taken from me, she said. And now they're saying this child would restore it back. He would describe the child described as a nourisher in your old age. Naomi's concern when she came back was Ruth and actually providing for Ruth. We need to do something for Ruth. She, she wasn't concerned about herself, but in that, God has provided for her. When she said to Ruth and her sister, go back, find husbands so you're okay, and Ruth said, no, I'm coming with you. I'll, I'll, I'll stick by you. Actually, Naomi was then still concerned for Ruth. And actually, in that process, she has found provision for herself. The provision of a son, provision of a husband means she's going to be looked after. The Lord has provided for her. Even in the loss of the death of her husband and her children, it says here what the chorus line says, actually. He says that um, Naomi, sorry, Ruth, is better than seven sons. What does that mean? Well, the idea of seven sons in the culture and the custom was almost the, the epitome of abundance and blessing because it all went through the male line. So if you had a son, you're doing well. You had two sons, well, that's twice as good. Seven was that idea of completeness. And actually, if you've got seven sons, that's just the best you can have in your family. That's just the, that's just the ultimate. You've got provision. You've got blessing. You've got security for the future. And they say in Ruth, they're saying, actually, you found something way better. Because of Ruth's commitment to you, Ruth's commitment to God, her faithfulness, her integrity that we've seen through this entire story, that is way better than having seven sons. And the love she's expressed to Naomi throughout this whole thing. And then she's got her grandson. Any grandparents in the house? I've watched grandparents. When grandchildren come along, normal, sensible adults 
go a bit gaga. They go, I don't know what happens to them. I've been a parent and I've, I've had that life-changing thing. I've got a child. It's incredible. I love this child. When you see grandparents, they just they go crazy. I think it's because they don't have to take the responsibility of looking after the child the whole time. So they just kind of bless it and then they walk out the door. I've seen that. But grandchildren are such a blessing uh, to families. Children blessing and, and for grandparents to love on it. And Naomi now at the end of the story can hold in her arms her own grandchild. What a transformation from the beginning. What a joy that would have been to that woman in her old age, watching her child grow up. I remember on my brother's wedding, my grandma was there uh, with us, um, and she saw my son Levi. He was about two at the time, and he was running about. So that was her great-grandson. And she died shortly after, but I remember her sitting there, and all she wanted to do was watch the kids run. And, and Levi ran with his cousins who were a little bit older, a couple of boys there, and they just basically ran up and down during the wedding. They ran around the back, they ran up and down, and she watched my brother get married. And then during the reception, she just wanted a seat where she could see the grandkids play. And all the boys did was just run up and down. <laughs> and the whole time, she just sat there beaming, looking at the kids running up and down. And that's the blessing that grandchildren can bring to families and so Naomi now, at the end of the story, gets to hold her our grandson. At one point she thought, I've got nothing, everything's over. And yet God has restored it to her, and she now can hold her grandchild. Now if we look at the big picture, the, we, this child is named Obed. Um, and they celebrate, like any family would, the arrival of a child, a great time of blessing. We love doing that here. We love it in the church. Anytime the child arrives, we love to celebrate and bless. And the fact this child is a boy means the continuation of the line. The line that was going to be cut out with the death of the other sons is now being restored through Obed. But actually, what the narrator puts in the end there is of its historical significance. It wasn't just significant for the family. They've got a child. Great. It was actually historical significance for the whole nation of Israel. Because it comes towards David. It points towards David. And David was the one who would be the greatest king in the history of the people of Israel. He was God's chosen king. He was the one God said, this is the one. This is the one. His, on his throne will always sit someone. We'll, someday will come. We'll sit on this throne forever. Not like a temporary human king. There's one coming after him. And so this is huge for them. And genealogies in the Bible are basically a way of writing History. It's their way of recording history. They'd write a genealogy of the sons and the sons and, um, and do that. And what this is idea, what they've put at the end of the book, which is a bit of a, in our mind, a bit of a dull way to finish a book that's been kind of exciting like this. But actually it's to show the direct lineage of David that comes from Perez. Now Perez was the son of Judah. Judah is the one that we saw in our, when we did our preaching series on Joseph. He was the one that was prophesied by his father about actually the scepter will never pass from Judah. Which was the scepter of rulership and leadership. And then he had a son Perez and you follow it all the way down through Obed to David. And actually, this is the scepter of authority. This is what's going to come. So this line of kingship has been restored that was broken. And David is the most important character in the Old Testament, maybe alongside Moses. But in terms of sheer tonnage, David is mentioned more in the Bible and the Old Testament than anyone else than Jesus. So he is the man where it comes to it. So he was the great king. If you read 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, and a whole bunch of Psalms, David just 
dominates it. He is this huge uh, figure in Old Testament history and central to the purpose of God. And we've got this little story in the book of Ruth tucked away in the Bible that connects directly to the great and mighty king David. In 2 Samuel 7, there's the prophecy that Nathan gives to David, say, on this throne, uh, I'll put your descendants forever and ever. And ultimately, one day, we know that will lead uh, to Jesus. And the purpose of that genealogy is to, to remind us that actually God's hand has been at work. God's loving kindness has been at work through these individuals, through what he's done to restore the line and continue his purposes. And God's providential hand has been at work through faithful followers, men and women who have integrity, who have just acted in their ordinary kind of lines and their ordinary lives and just done what they should normally do. But actually through it, God has done a great and mighty work. And if you skip forward in your New Testament and you go to Matthew chapter 1, you have this genealogy, but it's extended. It goes back to Abraham, but it goes on to Jesus. And so ultimately what has happened with Ruth and Boaz and Naomi leads directly to the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the one who was promised way back in Genesis chapter 3 who would come and he would be the Savior of all. And that was Jesus himself. Okay, let's just have a few points of application and then we will finish. Three things. First one for our lives. The hand of God works in all circumstances for his glory and our good. The hand of God works in all circumstances for his glory and our good. We see this through the lives of the characters in the story. We see um, God working through tragedy, through pain and loss and death, even in those horrific situations God would work. We, three, we see God working through just jobs and plain hard work. People working at their ordinary jobs, God is at work. We see it through courtship and romance. But actually, even in finding a spouse, pursuing someone, God is at work. We see it in relationships being built. We see even it through laws and customs of the land being worked out. God is at work. And we see it through the joy of marriage and children. That whatever the circumstances, good and bad, God is at work. Particularly in the difficult ones. Particularly in the tough times. Particularly how this story starts with pain and tragedy and loss and death. God is at work. He never leaves his people alone. He's always working. And where is this ultimately expressed? In the cross of Christ. The cross of Jesus Christ was a place of betrayal. It was a place of rejection. It was a place of humiliation. It was a place of injustice. It was a place of suffering and the cruelest death ever devised by man. It was absolutely horrific. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong when it came to the cross, when you look at it from a human perspective, there was nothing good, nothing right about it. It was horrific. You had the sinless, perfect Son of God being betrayed, being falsely accused, and then ultimately dying a horrific death. Yet, after the resurrection, it became the place of victory. It became the place where the penalty of sin was paid. It became the place where death is defeated. It became the place where captives are set free. It became the place where life was given. And it became the place where a kingdom was inaugurated and begun. That's that's the, the truth for us. That actually whatever God is doing in your life right now, he'll work through any circumstances, no matter how bad, no matter how good. God is at work. And we need to hear this particularly for the bad circumstances, for the difficult ones, that God is at work. He loves you. 
He is for you. The cross speaks of that. If you're not a believer here, you need to hear that today. That actually the cross of Christ speaks to you. Because what Jesus died for on the cross was all our sin, all our shame. Sin is just a byword for all the ways we've rebelled against the holy God. And the God is holy and perfect and other and separate for us. So the ways we've rebelled against him is every time we haven't been holy and perfect, which if we are honest is like all the time, isn't it? We don't, we don't reach up to that standard. The thoughts of our hearts, the words we speak, the actions we make. But the good news is in Christ it's been paid for. And we can go free. Not because we've earned it, not because we're smart, not because we're good, not because we're better than everyone else out there. Because God is good and God is gracious and God is kind. And God will offer forgiveness to all who turn to him. And because of the cross, we know that whatever we face, we have the power to persevere. We have the grace to persevere because God says, I will do that for you. I will take your mess of your life. I will take the pain and suffering that you're walking, the things you're facing, and I will turn it around and use it for my purposes and your glory. I reflect back on my own life and some of the things that happen. And there's been lots of good things, lots of up things, lots of things to celebrate. But there's been some horrible things, some tough things, some difficult things. But the reality is if I hadn't gone through them, I wouldn't be here now with you. I wouldn't have moved to this town with my family and a small team to start this church. You wouldn't be sitting in this room if some of the things that happened to my life hadn't happened. And I can say with complete assurance that God took evil things that happened, bad things that happened, and turned it around for his good. Sorry, for my good and his glory. He, he did those things, and it can happen. And I don't know what you're facing in your life right now. I don't know if things are going well and on the up. You might find, you might think, I'm, cha- I'm chapter four. My life currently, chapter four of Ruth, things are going well. Well, I can assure you God's at work. But for those of you who are in chapter one, and it's just a mess, I can assure you today God is at work in your life. And when we get some opportunity to pray at the end, whatever you're facing, we just bring it to God and, uh, and commit to him and have faith to trust him that he's working it out, whatever it is. Second thing I want us to look at today is our actions will outlive us. Who remembers the 2000 film Gladiator starring Russell Crowe? What was the tagline on that? What we do in life echoes in eternity. Which was, you know, pretty dumb in the context of the film. But in reality, it's true. From a a biblical dynamic, it is very true, that statement. The actions of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz on one sense were, were, were very kind of surfacy, human, day-to-day, ordinary, we could say. But the ramification on their lives and the lives of others was absolutely huge. The display of godly character in their lives meant their names are recorded in God's eternal word that we're still talking about now thousands of years later. Remember the other character Mel spoke about last week? The other Redeemer? We don't even know his name. He just turned up, displayed not great character, was written off the scene, and we don't even know who he is. And so there are consequences to our actions. And what they did far outlasted their life. And for those guys, it's going to last into eternity. Because Jesus said, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word won't. So their names are recorded for eternity. And what a privilege they had to be part of the story that ultimately would one day lead to Jesus. That actually they played their part when their time came 
They played their part humbly, simply, and they were part of that story. And what we do in life is far going to outlive us. There's an obvious effect in what we do now. I start screaming and shouting you and punching you. It's going to have an instant effect now, but actually it's going to have ramifications on there. If you think about your life, what brings you to this place now? You reflect about people and things that have happened. Actions that have happened are having ramifications now. I think about how I'm here now speaking to you from the Bible and I reflect back on people, some of them who've passed away, but actually their input into my life, their words into their life. If one of my old Sunday school leaders who has passed away could see me now, I think she'd laugh. I think she would just laugh and laugh and laugh that God could take me and how I was being dragged to church and doing these things and, and make me into a church leader. It's just ridiculous. I remember she gave me a key ring once and all it said on it was, slow me down, Lord. And that was, that was what I was like, just flying around, you know, doing stuff. I see it in my, my children. But actually, and I've had youth leaders and people who've helped me and prayed for me and my parents and all those things have influenced me and what their actions have are having ramifications in my life and actually yours because you're listening to me. Isn't that funny? She'd laugh at that too. I'm sure she would if she saw that. And so the question for us is, what are you investing your time and energy in? What are you investing your time and energy in? What are you giving yourself to now? Are you giving yourself to things that will last or things that are going to just pass away in moments? We give you a clue. The things that are going to last are people, not stuff. People is what's going to last. Give your life into people and how you use that. And you can use many things in your life to help and invest in people. We did a series just a while back on money, didn't we? Called it What's in Your Wallet. We looked at how we use our money uh, wisely before God and rightly before God. But actually we invest our money wisely. We invest it in people. We invest it in God's kingdom. We invest it in blessing and helping people. We just had that, um, the offering that we took to serve people. I see people we'll probably never meet, let's be honest. Maybe not till eternity. How are we going to use our money? And I'm staggered at the amount. We're up to nearly 5,000 pounds now. How we use our money. We had recently, we had the kids, uh, the youth camp called New Day where we sent a bunch of our teenagers away. I think there was thousands of teenagers all together. What a thought that would be. And our youth leaders went away. And these are people who gave up their holiday time. And they, they gave up time and they went and they spent a week camping with teenagers. Oh my goodness, they deserve our respect and our prayer and our admiration. But they gave up their time just to invest in our young people. And we're going to have some stories the next few weeks, some of them are on holiday, just to tell you what God has done in their lives. Sneak peek you, there were some healings, there were some salvations, but we're going to get to hear them. So it was amazing, but they invested their time people. And those actions that week will bear fruit that will last for decades, for years, and on into eternity. We've got the Alpha course coming up. I mentioned, you don't know what effect talking to your friend, neighbor, family member, colleague, saying, do you fancy doing an Alpha course, will have. What's the worst they can say is no, fine. But actually, yes. We've got people in this church who were invited by a friend to come on an Alpha course, hear about Jesus, and they're now loving Jesus, serving him, following him, and part of our family part of our fellowship. Simple things now have echoes in eternity. One simple act of kindness. 
One simple word. If I think about some of the influences on my life, I can sometimes boil it down to just phrases and statements people have said to me. How they've just impacted me, made me think, oh my goodness. And now they're shaping my life in years to come. What's God calling you to? What's God nudging you on in all these things? Last one. Third one. It will all make sense in the end. Think about this. The characters in this story that we've spent six weeks talking about had absolutely no clue what was going to come out of their lives. Absolutely none. They wanted to love God. They wanted to serve God. But their priorities in the story was one was food. They were poor. Naomi and Ruth, they needed to get something to eat. Then there was the redemption and Boaz getting involved in that, and there was marriage, and then at the end of it, they had one little boy. That's all we get to hear about. But they had no clue about what's to come. So you've got Ruth, Naomi, and Boaz. All they got to see here was a child, one boy being born, Obed. That was it. That was their whole world. They'd served God faithfully, and that's all they'd seen. Now, if you get to take the writer, the person who wrote the story down, now they had a slightly longer perspective, didn't they? They got to write the story down and say, aha, I saw what happened with, with Obed. I can see the family line. And where does it come to? David. And with David, you know, he's great. So I can tell the story seeing that it comes to David. It makes sense to me because actually this story over here of God working and people's faithfulness now comes to the great and mighty King David who killed Goliath and established the kingdom of Israel. Isn't that wonderful? And then there's us. We're over here. And we look back and think, no, 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 no. You see a little bit, but guess what? Guess where it should really go? Where's the end of the story? It's Jesus. Go to Matthew chapter 1. So Matthew's writing his gospel and says, ah, you get down to Obed and Obed gets to David, but I can carry on the family line. And eventually you get to Jesus, son of Joseph. And you've got the saviour of the world. It all makes sense. And as you go further, And you look back, you can see how the story makes sense. But when you're in it, you can't always see it. Ruth, Naomi, Boaz wouldn't have a clue what was happening. They wouldn't understand what had gone through. Why did this tragedy and loss? Why did it go around like this? Why do we have to do this? Why do we have to go through these things? They wouldn't have had a clue. But actually it will all make sense in the end. Whatever you're facing, whatever you've gone through, you may not understand what's happened. You may not understand why. You may not understand what you're going through. The storms of life may have come for you. They may have receded for a bit. They may come again. The good news today is they're going to come again. While you're breathing, it's going to come again. You're welcome, by the way. They'll come again. There'll be tough times. You'll be battered. You'll be thrown around. There'll be things like, I don't know why that's happening. Why am I being made redundant? Why is that loss coming to my life? Why is that relationship broken? Why are these things happening to me? Why is this happening to my family? I don't know. But what I can tell you is at the end, it will all make sense. Because one day we'll see Jesus face to face. And there'll be no more crying and no more suffering and no more tears. And that old order will have gone away and everything will make sense before God. Everything will make sense. Why things have happened. And what will cry is worthy is the lamb who was slain. Because ultimately he will get the glory for working it out. And so actually if we plant ourselves back into this story, 
we find ourselves like Ruth or Naomi or Boaz just kind of doing our things, stuff happening around us, we don't get it. But we can say in faith now that when we get to the end and we look back, it will make sense. And that's where we are today as believers. Whatever you're facing right now, we need to make that commitment of faith. God, whatever is going on in our life, whatever's happening day by day, ultimately you are working out your plans and purposes. And that's what the book of Ruth teaches us. That actually no matter what's going on, God's hand is at work. And what Ruth teaches is actually is often unseen. We like the exciting bits of the Bible. I like Red Seas parting. I like the dead coming back to life. I love really exciting stories like that. You know, boring stories of someone picking up scavenging grain from a field is frankly just dull. But the reality is that's 99.9% of life, isn't it? Just getting, you know, today, get out today, clean your teeth, get the kids breakfast, get them dressed. You know, you, you go through these things, but God is working. God is working through your life. And no matter whether you can see it or not, when you get to the end and you look back, it will all make sense. It will all make sense to the point where the only words we can come out of our mouth are worthy is the lamb who was slain. Praise the Lord. He is the only one worthy of our praise. He is the only one worthy of our adoration. He is the only one who is good and gracious. He is the only one who worked all this out. He's the one who put his plan from the beginning to the end and worked it to perfection. And one day there will be a crowd before the throne from every tribe and nation and tongue, and they'll all pry, worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Amen. Amen. Do you want to just stand? I'm going to pray, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time worshipping to finish. May you just want to close your eyes, open your hands. I'm just going to leave a little bit of time of prayer and response, and then we're going to sing. I don't know what you're going through, and I'm serious. I literally don't know what's going on in everyone's lives. But I do know that if we've got a room this size, there'll be people facing tough times. There will be people who'll be living in chapter one of our story when just things aren't going right, things are going well. And I just want to pray for you, particularly if you're in this situation. Or maybe you're reflecting back on things like that happened in your life many years ago, but you kind of still bear the scars now. And Lord God, I want to thank you that whatever we face, whenever we face a difficult time, you are with us. You do not leave us alone. Even when you can't, we can't see you, you are there. Lord, and we as a people, we choose to respond in faith to that and say that you, that you are there with us. Lord God, we thank you that you take our circumstances, you take our mess, you even take the dumb choices we make and you use them for your glory. Thank you that your grace is bigger than us and bigger than what we do. And if you're here now and your faith has I just want you to just talk to God. Be honest. If you're in pain, say it. If you're hurting, say it. If you're just kind of at the end, I don't understand, say it. Read many of the Psalms that David wrote that begin like that. God, what are you doing? Why is this going on? But then they end with faith. They end with 
God, I will serve you. I will praise you. You are above all things. And I pray, oh, that's what we need to get to today, guys. It doesn't solve anything. doesn't change anything. But actually, God, you are above all things. So maybe you need to make that call to God. Just, just speak to him and say, hey, God, this is where I'm at. But I choose to follow you. I choose to sing your praise. I choose to put my faith and hope and trust in you. And if you're here and you kind of that whole thing about what we do in life echoes beyond us, has ramifications beyond us. I just feel I just want to ask for a response for you from that point of view. If you actually think, do you know what, I want to make an impact in with my life on the life of others that will go way beyond me. I just want you to respond now. Maybe you want to open your hands. Maybe you want to say, yo, that's me. I want to give my life to investing in others for your kingdom. Simple words of kindness, acts of blessing, spending time with people, praying for people, just coming alongside them, getting them in your home, all these things. Lord Jesus, I pray you give us grace as your people to invest in others, to love on others, to live lives of integrity and holiness and righteousness that will impact others, that will go so far beyond us. And we'll never actually see it all till the end, but actually that's what we're praying, Lord. If that's you, just ask that for God now. Ask that from him.